2: Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell you about a new podcast that you are going to love, Clark After Dark. It's a true crime podcast that focuses on true crime's deadliest couples and is hosted by husband and wife duo Alan and Teresa Clark. Check out Clark After Dark available wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome in to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I'm Nick Saberi. On the program today, the Oxford, Michigan shooting, what happened there? Nick and I are going to break everything down. Plus, later on in the program, former FBI assistant director, the host of The Bureau with Frank Frick podcast, and an MSNBC contributor, Frank Frick is going to be joining us. He's going to help us break down everything that happened as well in in Oxford, Michigan, as well. We'll get into some January 6th stuff. And then Nick and I are going to talk about what's happening and unfolding in China with Peng Shui, the WTA tennis star, and her disappearance. I'm using air quotes if you can see us on video. But first... Before that, I say hello to
3: my partner in crime, Nick Savary. Nick, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. Um, I'll be honest. You know, I when we have these shootings, you know, as even prior to being a parent, it always leaves you with a heavy heart. Um, it takes on a whole different meaning now. You know, for for both you and I, or anyone with kids. Um, yeah, so I'm hanging in there, man. But again, like. Death taxes and school shootings, brother. Like that's that's the national pastime, sadly, in this country. I don't mean to be facetious about it, but no. you know, our track record for this is piss poor. I, I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about it tonight.
2: Well, let's get right into it because obviously last week there was a school shooting in Oxford, Michigan. Nick and I have a mutual friend that we went to college with that actually lives about, about 30 to 40 minutes away. Uh, he's in that, he lives in that county and has two kids that go to school at another school in the county. All schools were suspended for the week, but Uh, Ethan Crumbly, 15 year old student uh, armed with, I believe, his father's pistol. They're still trying to confirm that Uh, he killed four students, injured another seven people at Oxford High School, which is just a suburb north of Detroit. Um, There were some behavioral reports that came out recently as two teachers separately reported concerning behavior from this sophomore starting the day before the deadly Michigan high school shooting. Uh, it prompted two meetings, including one with his parents, literally hours before the killings, the sheriff said. Take a listen to the sheriff summarizing this in his conference after uh, the
0: shooting. Around
1: 1251 today, we received a 911 call of an active shooter at the high school. Our deputies immediately responded and uh, we received over 100 hundred nine-one-one calls into our dispatch center, over 100 um, the uh, deputies uh, took a suspect into custody within five minutes of the original 911 call. They recovered a handgun from the suspect. The suspect fired multiple shots. There's multiple victims. Uh, it's unfortunate. That I have to report that we have three deceased victims right now who are all believed to be students. We have six others that were shot. One was a school teacher. They're all at local hospitals being treated for various injuries. Um, Again, uh, multiple shots were fired. He did not give us any resistance when he was taken into custody. He's currently being transported back to Pontiac uh, for potential. Well, I, He's already already invoked his right to, to not speak. So he wants an attorney. He's not telling us anything at this point in time.
2: Um, so there you heard from the actual police department. And obviously, like I said, that was right after. Uh, another a victim ended up passing away, I believe, the next day after seven in total were reported that were injured in the shooting. President Biden spoke about the school shooting. And, you know, again, he was vice president under the Sandy Hook stuff. So obviously a somber heart when he spoke um, a couple days ago about the school shooting. Take a listen to what President Biden said. Before I get into my remarks and any detail, I was informed after the tour I learned about a school shooting in Michigan. We learned, uh, well, as we learned the full details, my heart goes out to the families enduring the unimaginable grief of losing a loved one. Apparently, there were somewhere in the order of nine people shot, and several, or three, I think, are dead. And the young man, I think, as I understand it from staff, is about 15 years old, and he uh, he turned himself in. Um, And uh, this Said he, And he claimed his uh, right against self-incrimination and handed over his pistol. That's all we know about it. But uh, you've got to know that that whole community has to be just in a state of
3: shock right now.
2: All right. A lot to digest there. Um, I, I want to get a couple of things off my chest. You know, as now everybody who's been watching, listening to our show know that I have recently introduced another child to the Leon family. I now have two girls. One's not even close to really going to school yet. And obviously the other one is a month old, but um, for you, Nick, as a parent watching kids, you know, your daughter is in school now. um, And when my daughters get to school, there's nothing probably more frightening uh, for me now thinking about uh, when I went to school as a kid, you know, in the eighties to what it is now to knowing how easily accessible guns are and school shootings have become commonplace where my mother-in-law practices active shooter drills in Florida because you know, she teaches at a school maybe 30 minutes south of Parkland. Um, it has become, like you mentioned, deaf taxes and school shootings. And there is so much to this. we, we always get back to the voices in DC, right? Why aren't we doing anything about gun control or at least stricter laws that restrict access to not only machine grade style weapons, but also background checks, longer delay processes. And then we get into states rights and it's all broken down. So we're going to have somebody on, uh, obviously, from the legal field, talking about some of that in the subsequent weeks. Uh, In the next segment, we talk with Frank more about the shooting. But for me, seeing that scroll, it has now become, oh, Another shooting. How many times have you and I texted? Oh, another shooting. Oh, another school shooting. There was one maybe a couple months ago, right? I believe in Texas. Uh, nobody passed away, but but uh, a couple people got hurt. So everybody just goes, ah, well, nobody got hurt. So you know, just another school shooting in a in an open carry state. You know, this is it's. There's this weird gun culture, and I, I think we when we had Jeff promman on the program, if you remember, he said he was thinking of writing a book about being a gun zealot right like going undercover and like just going to gun shows and trying to find out why people are so enamored with guns and i never understood it and there's people in my family from you know from florida that are big into guns collect guns they like to go hunting and stuff like that but also like to go to shooting ranges just to kind of you know let off some steam and i totally get that i i guess you know, my letting off steam is going to the golf course, a little bit different, uh, not armed with a gun, shooting at a target, I'm um, trying to hit, you know, you know, seven iron, uh, 170 yards to the green. So, but I, I just, I never understood it. I would love for somebody that listening to this program, can we please talk podcast at gmail.com, explain to me why you think that after seeing another school shooting in which four kids, four kids all under the age of 17 are dead, that you don't think there, there should be any type of gun uh, laws, or at least this, should be a unifying issue that everyone's looking at, saying we need to do something about this. You know, it's coming out, and we talked about it with Frank in the next segment, that he potentially took his father's gun, and the gun was purchased, uh, I believe, on Black Friday, um, uh, uh, you know, some type of trade deal. And we're gonna get into the school psychologist and people that you know maybe didn't you know raise the red flags about this kid. And then, you know, you get this kid will be politicized. Hey, he's a lone actor, X, Y, Z. But there's a pattern here, right? Another state where you're allowed to carry a gun, where a kid brings in a gun, shoots students, talked about shooting students, social media post about shooting students, nothing's done. What's going on here? How many stop signs do we got to run through before we realize there's an issue? Nick, you, you work in education. This is, this hits home for you. And I know because- You've obviously been a teacher in classrooms. This is scary stuff. Give me some of your takes. You saw this scroll come up about the school shooting. You and I talked about we were going to talk about this topic. Um, give, me some, give me some thoughts, man.
0: Yeah, I,
3: you know it's interesting. I mean I think I think there's obviously a gun problem. There's a gun problem in this country in the sense that the availability and access to guns is something we should always be talking about. Just to ask the question: What is it about being an American that you know? For many, there's an association with the fact that yes, there is a Second Amendment, and it is my my right as a citizen to exercise said Second Amendment. Um, I get that it exists. You know, obviously this amendment does, but the need for it is something I, I, I'm always I'm I'm always sort of stupefied by. But that but that aside. Um, I know for myself, for you, you know, for many people we know, even us having access to guns. Now, granted, you know, I'm in my 40s. You just recently joined Club 40, but um, but even us as younger people, we weren't in a situation where even if we had access to a gun, it would have sort of occurred to us to bring that into school and to enact violence, no matter how angry we were. Um, and I know for myself, growing up, I definitely you know got into a couple of scraps in school. And even if I had access to a gun, I don't think it would have ever occurred to me to bring it to, to school to to use it to harm others. Um, which speaks to the other part of this conversation, which is what is it about anger and the availability and the the want to enact violence at this lethal level? You know what is happening in this country, and it, it is certainly something in the United States where we're seeing this happen all too many times. And yes, part of this. A huge part of this is the availability of guns, but can but on the other side to it too is like what is happening socially and emotionally that we're seeing a generation of men, and let's not fool ourselves. This is predominantly young men doing this that prov- produces a a want to do it, to a want to harm others. That I think is the other component to this, and it's the one that I think we need to give extra equal weight to because. Yes, you could always illuminate all guns and, you know, what does that mean? Okay, well, maybe people stab each other. Who, who knows? But and in this case, I think the weapon in question may have been a pistol. It may not have been an AR15 or a machine gun, these type of, you know, military grade weapons. And we should openly question as a country why do, why do civilians have access to them. Um but regardless, what produces that effect in someone? And as a school community, what what are people able to do? when they're seeing someone that displays a behavior that tells you something is wrong whether they enable whether they engage in violence or whatever but someone is clearly hurting to the point where the only avenue for them is to harm others you know along the tracks here at some point there has to be an early intervention to be able to sit with this young man share what's being observed you know, by their peers, by teachers, and in this case, some did. You know, some teachers came forward. was like, hey, something's up. But once again, it's you know, these cries are being put out there, and no one's answering them, or they're not answering them in a way to say, we need to sit and observe this person. You know, Mike. In a coming weeks, we're going to have someone on this show who's going to talk about a common thread. I don't want to necessarily. I'm not going to give away the common thread, but I'll let everyone sort of do their own homework on this one. Notice these shooters. I gave one important characteristic away, their gender. There's another one. We also should be very honest with ourselves about And I think that plays a huge role in as a society, why we're not necessarily having the, having the right conversation about mental health and, and what it's doing to young men in these moments of becoming school shooters. Nick, just as
2: if this story couldn't get any weirder, man, um, the parents of Ethan Crumbly, James and Jennifer Crumbly, were both arrested and arraigned over the weekend. They both pled not guilty. Um, Bond has been set at $500,000 apiece. Um, The prosecutors filed involuntary manslaughter charges against the Crumblies. He's accusing, she's accusing them, excuse me, of failing to intervene on the day of the tragedy, despite being confronted with a drawing and a chilling message that said blood everywhere that was found at Ethan's desk. So the the prosecutor said the Crumblies committed egregious acts from buying a gun on Black Friday, making it available to their son, resisting his removal from the school when they were summoned a few hours before the shooting. Like I mentioned earlier, a few hours before the shooting, these people were told that this kid is a danger and he needs to be psychiatric evaluated and taken out of school. They resisted. Um, these two, <laughs> this to this, man. The pair had left town earlier in the week for their own safety, and their lawyer had said to law enforcement that they, you know, that they would, uh, if they were charged with anything in this, because there was text message exchange shown from the mother to Ethan, telling him to not do this or something about don't get caught. Um, it, it's it's just so many twists and turns, but basically they stopped answering their lawyer's cell phone messages. They took out like $4,000 in cash. They tried to get away in a vehicle and they were parked in a garage. And, uh, you know, the Michigan Police Department, Oxford, you know, all law enforcement in the state of Michigan, the US Marshals helped in this search to find them. They were found hiding in the parking garage um, of this building. Um, It's just so crazy. A Detroit business owner spotted the car tied to the crumblies in the parking lot late Friday. Uh, a woman seen near the vehicle ran away when the business owner called 911. The couple was later located and arrested, and you know, it turned out to be the two of them. And there's so many layers to this, man. Um, but when we come back after the break, Frank Figluzzi, like I mentioned, the former FBI assistant director, host of his own podcast, The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi, and also an MSNBC and NBC um, contributor, he's going to be joining us, going to break down everything that happened with the school shooting. In Oxford, Michigan, and the January 6th stuff, Frank, after the break. Today's episode is presented by stamps.com. Since 1998, stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for
3: nearly 1 million businesses. Nick, stamps.com? I love it. I love stamps.com. Not so big a fan of the post office. To be clear, love the postal workers, but I just, the whole service just doesn't work for me, man. I need to get my stamps, I need to have a way to get them quickly get them all to my envelopes and out the door. So Stamps.com has always been helpful for that.
2: Boy, hopefully the US Postal Service is not listening to this because <laughs> if you guys remember in the 90s about postal service workers, anyway, Stamps.com brings the services of that US Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop, a full-blown warehouse shipping out order, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. Nick and I record on a computer. And I got a printer sitting right next to me. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running. Printing official package for any letter package, anywhere you want to send it, and you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and the UPS. Uh, Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup and drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Save time and money with Stamps.com. Head to their page right now, Stamps.com. Enter the promo code POD. You're going to get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on that microphone, type in POD, and never go to that post office again. All right, here to help us break down everything that happened with the shooting in Oxford, Michigan, with the January 6th stuff. I'm a big fan of this guy. He is a former FBI assistant director and NBC News uh, contributor, and he's the host of his own podcast, The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi and that's Frank Figluzzi. Frank, Mike, Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast and I truly appreciate it.
0: Mike and Leon, th- thank you for having me. I I enjoy casual conversations that uh, any anything that's not, uh, you know, 2 million people on live national television is is nice for me.
2: That's right. Well, that's our goal one day, Frank. Uh, we're in the thousands. so He's
3: just being straight up. He's like, you're not yeah. there yet. Small (laughs) potatoes. I'm going to relax to that. That's awesome. Baby steps. Baby steps. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Frank, you know, um, I've worked in news production before at at Fox News, um, and you know, I've always booked analysts on on different programs from when I worked with Chef Smith um, to Greta Van Susteren and and all the Fox News Live folks. I've always wondered this, and as before, we get into the heavy stuff. Um, why don't you give our audience a little bit of a sense of what made you get into law enforcement? How'd you get your start and how did you rise and ascend up the ranks of the FBI? Take us through your journey.
0: Here, here's where I get uh, to do a shameless plug of my now national bestselling book, which came out in January. Uh, and, um, and by the way, ne- next month we, uh, we launched the paperback version. It's called The FBI Way Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. And in the first couple of chapters, I do indeed talk about how as a kid, I mean, like 11 years old, I wrote a letter. I, I grew up in Connecticut. I write a letter to the head of the FBI in Connecticut. And I say, hey, I'm a kid and I want to be an FBI agent someday. And, and he writes back to me. He writes, It's not a form letter. It's, you know, he signs it. He tells me to, what I need to do. And I, I hung on to that letter for a very, very long time. Look, I think I was, I, I was raised in a home where there was good and bad in the world. Um, there was fairness and there was injustice that, you know, the, and and yes, the world is a lot grayer than that kind of black and white um, portrayal that I saw as a kid. But, you know, there were good folks in the world and bad folks in the world. And I wanted to be on the good side. And I have to be honest with you, I, growing up in uh, Southern Connecticut, we were part of the New York City media market. So it was a time when the, the FBI was taking down the mob, the, mo- you know, the mafia. And I was like, Th- these guys are pretty cool. They're using brain power to take down organized crime, and I start looking into it, and I realize, gosh, at, at that time, you know, they really wanted lawyers and accountants, and I certainly wasn't into accounting. Uh, but <laughs> I decided, you know, maybe I'll go to law school, and that's exactly what I did after college. Um, I actually did an honors internship during law school at FBI headquarters in Washington, and that just that just confirmed for me that this is the kind of thing I wanted to do. And it, it worked out. It's kind of like kids who, you know, they want to play outfield for the Yankees, and, and it, it's not going to happen. But for me, you know, yeah, it, it happened. So um, it was a wild ride, 25-year career.
3: Yeah. See, so Frank was from northern Connecticut. He would have referenced the Red Sox. But from southern Connecticut, it is definitely Absolutely Yankee
0: territory. Right. Yep. Patriots right. and Red Sox versus <laughs> Yankees and Giants. Yep. That's
2: right. Uh, I am a Westchester, New York kid, so I know the Southern Connecticut area very well. I shared with you in that dream of playing center field for the Yankees, which ended up me being a podcast host. So, there um,
0: yeah, right. I, I was born in Westchester County. I was born in Port Chester. Oh, nice. oh I grew, nice. I grew up
2: in Harrison. So, so. Yeah. there we go. Our friendship continues to strengthen, Frank, as we, go, we go through this interview. Uh, Frank, let's get into, you know, Nick and I are both parents, both girl dads, to to four girls collectively. Uh, what happened in Oxford, Michigan and the suspect, Ethan Crumbly, that's now been arrested in connection with, you know, uh, the shooting of injuri- injuring seven people, killing four people. He's in custody now. I would love to get not only your perspective on the case itself, but how does this uh, work from a law enforcement perspective? Does mm-hmm. the FBI work with local police supporting him on this? Take us through the steps of the investigation process and what you think the Oxford Police Department is doing now to gather clues to help them in this investigation.
0: Well, I don't I don't mean to be facetious, but, you know, you led the question by saying, tell us how this works with law enforcement. And I'll add or does not work with law enforcement. So here's you know, I'm going to now get on a soapbox because I want to I want to talk a little bit about how things should work in the school setting with partnership with law enforcement and the police. How they often don't work, and, and how we may not have learned any lessons, uh, at least as it concerns this particular community. Um, and, and then I'll, I'll go on to maybe FBI support of this. But as, as someone who's been an FBI leader for 25 years, I did host in, in my field offices law enforcement and combined law enforcement, you know, and school official, guidance counselor, principal conferences so they would sometimes sadly for the first time meet with the police who were responsible for covering schools um, in their communities and we walked through kind of an fbi model of warning signs and indicators then when and how to bring in the police and then how the police should assess a situation for potential violence that model exists around the country works very well thankfully in many many communities but we're hearing, as this story unfolds, that at least in this school, there were concerns, two separate teachers reportedly, eventually culminating in parents being brought in. Um, and and now we we end up with, with dead children. So law enforcement seems not to have been brought in at least early enough in this picture. We'll, we'll hear more as this unfolds. But if I do nothing else tonight, I'd like to just remind people that there are warning signs and indicators, both in kids and in adults, that you need to be attuned to, that, you know, you don't want to be the one who says, after a tragedy, I knew something was going to happen. My gut told me there was something wrong. Don't be that person. If you start hearing and seeing um, the language of despondency, I can't take this anymore. There's nothing left to do. I've tried and exhausted all my avenues. Um, I And then start seeing... Acting out an ideation, verbalizing, I'm going to hurt somebody. I'm going to hurt myself. If if I just had a gun, I would do this. If I had the opportunity, I would hurt this person. And then um, then some silence where the person now retreats into themselves because now they're ready to commit. They've done their training. they've, They've written their disturbing essays. They've drawn their obsessive pictures. And now they're silent, get very, very worried. About that period of time, you're approaching a flashpoint to violence. There, we teach this to to uh, kids, teachers, counselors. Kids can recognize these signs as well, and certainly for police officer assessors. Where does the FBI come in in something like Oxford? Well. No, no clear federal nexus here. Certainly the gun will be checked out by ATF. Where did this come from? We're hearing it was purchased within just days prior to the shooting, perhaps by the father. That's gonna get looked at as, was that legal or not? Um, I, and then the FBI will come in and offer us forensic services regarding computer forensics. Going through this kid's devices is going to be laborious, but it's going to be a treasure trove of insight into the path he took to violence. And my prediction will be, since the FBI has studied every one of these mass shootings, that there are gonna be commonalities with the others, uh, many of which I've, I've talked to uh, here, the isolation, the despair, despondency, the warning signs are gonna have, have been there.
3: So if I'm a student, I I there's I feel like there's a bunch of places I want to go with what you just shared, and I appreciate you doing so. Not just us as parents, but to our listeners too, Frank. But um, first, just stepping back, what's the sort of FBI's relationship with um, mental health professionals? You know, you were speaking about interestingly at the beginning that you know for you and your you know growth becoming an FBI agent, it was more about you know accountants and like fields that we don't necessarily associate with law enforcement, which speaks to sort of. Really, sort of a more broader understanding of of what it takes to you know um, administer justice, but as it relates to mental health, what is the FBI's relationship, or how has it evolved over time in better understanding these trends as it relates to shooters or just or crime on a massive level like this?
0: Yeah, great great question. Because if you had asked that maybe at the you know thirty years ago, the answer would have been different. There is now a dedicated unit um, within the behavioral science setting that does nothing but threat assessment. They are there not only to research and analyze tragic events and glean lessons from them and, and then disseminate the lessons nationally, but they're also engaged in real-time active assessment for law enforcement. So, so police departments know that they can go to the FBI office uh, locally and they can say, I need help on this one. This this I don't know what to do with this kid or this adult. What say you FBI threat assessors? And that'll go right back to Quantico, Virginia, where that unit exists, and they will provide some real-time assessment of what the behavior of this person is looking like in terms of assessing as a threat.
3: You mentioned some of the trends that you see. If you're a student at the high school, you mentioned there were at least two reportings of like people raising awareness of what was potentially happening. But if you're any student in school, what would you say to a student to immediately raise awareness? Um, like what are, the, what are the appropriate channels to go through? And especially in the time of social media where what you just described a moment ago is now being played out oftentimes through Facebook and all, all these other places too. But to the average student at that high school or to any high school in America, or even you know, as early as the middle schools, what would be a message you'd offer to students just to be vigilant about when they're seeing something that sort of falls into the pattern you described earlier?
0: Well, you, you raised the, the really important aspect of social media and the reality that the eyes, the best positioned people, the eyes and ears um, that are probably going to be the first to see a potential problem are the peers of that student. They are in those chat rooms. They're getting the direct messaging. They're looking at the Twitter or TikTok um, postings or Instagram and they're the ones who know because people start talking. Did you see that post? Did you see that tweet? Did you see that? And and if we can train and equip them, they're the first ones to go, okay, I, I've heard about this before. I need to report. And then the school has to make it easy to report, get over that hurdle that I'm ratting somebody out or I could be wrong and this will be embarrassing, right? It's up to the school, the teachers, the counselors leadership to say we make this easy there are redundant ways to do this you can go to your teacher you can go to the guidance counselor you can walk into the assistant principal's office here's how we do it and drill it and get it in their heads it's sad right that we have to take time from math and history to talk about let's avoid uh getting killed in the in the hallway right but it's the reality today so i would say to them understand what this the pathway to violence looks like Understand when someone's acting atypical, talking about hurting themselves or others, the brooding, the obsessiveness, Um, now talk of weapons, or when they start getting specific, I will stab them. I have my gun. I have the knife. You're getting closer and closer to the flashpoint. It's time to to speak out and report.
3: There is a delineation about involvement in a case like this or any shooting because I imagine from like a federal level to like sort of local law enforcement, how does that relationship spark? Like in the midst, like when we have a shooting like this, does immediately the FBI receive, I mean, like they're obviously paying attention to the news, like any other you know organization in, in America, but what necessitates the FBI being able to appear? Is it sort of through the invitation of local law enforcement or does something immediately come to the level of where this is something that federal intervention is, is acceptable?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I can tell you, again, today the answer is different than many, many years ago where the FBI would be like, would say to the police, hey, call us if you need us, right? Or even say, hey, that doesn't look federal to us. Very, very different posture here, largely because of 9-11. And after 9-11, the realization was that we need to presume that there, that events like this could possibly be terrorism, as opposed to pre-9-11 where it was, again, call us, uh, Police Department, if you see any evidence of terrorism, then we'll come and help. Today, any request you have, you need an evidence uh, team to come in and do a complex crime scene? Do you need the SWAT team to come in because you've got a huge shopping mall that needs to be cleared and you can't do that alone? The answer is yes, you need psych services, victim witness services. The answer is we're here for you. It's a vastly different environment. There's there's no longer much concern in the immediate minutes after a tragedy like this. Hey, is this federal, is this state? That 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 has almost vanished. Of course, when charges are levied, yes, of course, then it matters, but in the aftermath, it's all hands on deck.
2: Frank, let's shift to domestic terrorism and what happened on January six. Uh, you do a great job. I see you all the time across the NBC and MSNBC properties, breaking down everything that happened on January six, the subsequent arrest, the investigations that are happening, the trials that have been playing out in front of us. We we've had Ryan Riley on the program, you know, the Huffington Post reporter and MSNBC contributor, and he said something about the FBI was a little bit stretched thin just because of the mass amount of people that have been involved, you know, over 580 arrests, I believe now, since since what happened on January 6th. What is the latest that you can share with us about um, some of these investigations on people that are being arrested? And then on the flip side, the January 6th committee has had a lot of traction in terms of subpoenas and who they're going to be calling as potential witnesses. What's the latest you can share with our audience on both fronts?
0: Yeah, I'm uh, good timing because this week's edition, again, a shameless plug now of my podcast, this week's episode of The Bureau with Frank Vigaluzzi has really the go-to reporter on all things January 6th, and that's Scott McFarlane, NBC4, Washington, D.C. The guy has an encyclopedic knowledge of the the defendants, the charging documents. He's read them all, he sits in court and hears what's going on, and we talk about what we can glean from that and where we think this is going. So, um, look, you mentioned Ryan Riley saying, hey, the FBI is a little stretched thin. I'll, I'll go a step further. They're, they're stretched to the max. All but one of the 56 FBI field, field offices in this country are engaged in this investigation. And it is very much ongoing. We are approaching 700 defendants already. And my sources tell me, and Scott McFarland has confirmed we're nowhere near done. Um, you may you may easily see a couple hundred or 300. We, we may hit a thousand defendants before this is all over. And what does that look like in the average FBI field office? It looks like, hey, you might be on the organized crime squad or you might be on the mortgage fraud or healthcare fraud squad, but guess what? You're working January 6th and you're doing these arrests. You're doing these interviews. It's coordinated out of headquarters in Washington. And that coordination, you know, Scott McFarland raises a great point. He, by mistake, I think DOJ released an FBI interview report on one of the Oath Keepers that was arrested and Scott grabbed it and saw it. And it it showed that they asked this Oath Keeper, have you had any contact or know anyone in the Congress or a congressional staffer? That was a clue that Part of this coordination out of headquarters is an establishment of kind of template questions that all the field offices need to ask of, of the, the folks getting arrested. And if that's true, and one of those is ask about their knowledge or, or affiliation with anybody in Congress, that's a clue that they are indeed looking up the chain for the role of any uh, congressional members or staffers. Um, we know surveillance is going on. He sees uh, Scott has seen in the charging documents evidence of of drone surveillance, physical surveillance, um, massive, massive digital data being seized. Imagine if you're looking at a thousand people and you've got all of their cell phone records, their computer uh, records, their devices, all of these knuckleheads were were recording themselves on their cell phones before, after posting live. um, And it is a mountain of data that has to be processed. And they've spread that throughout the FBI in all the regional computer forensic laboratories. It is overwhelming. And it's why you're seeing it take so long to get these people before the courts. The, the thing about being stretched to the max for the justice system is some of them are, are starting to realize, hey, wait a minute, they're not ready yet. I'm not going to waive the Speedy Trial Act. I wanna to go to court now. I'm ready now. I'll represent myself. Take me now. And the judge has had to say, hey, we're not ready for you yet. The evidence isn't here yet. They're grabbing prosecutors from the West Coast for these people. They're grabbing federal public defenders from places like Nevada and uh, and the Pacific Northwest and Puerto Rico. We're not ready for you yet. And, and, And the question is, what happens? Does the system crash if they all say, take me now, I, I'm not waiving my speedy trial rights.
2: Frank, um, I wanted to follow up there because, you know, I, I hate asking this question. I really do. You see Congress people that are saying that January 6th was FBI crisis actors. The absurdity of hearing something like that, Frank, For somebody like you that dedicated your life to chasing the bad guys, what does that do for you emotions-wise? I'm sure you've been asked this before. I'm sure you've spoken about it ad nauseum, but you've never had it from two regular guys who are just hosting a podcast. And I, I think I speak for the average person that saw January 6th play out in front of their TV and go, I can't believe that's happening. And now you want to find out what's happening with these people. And you have people within the congressional building saying that the FBI set this up. How how does that make you feel? And and is it something like you have to respond to some stupidity like that? I I hate asking that question, but it's unfortunately trickled through a, a lot of our political gleanings now. We have to figure out, is that person a moderate Republican or are they a right wing republic? And we're starting to see this play out. And I would love to hear your take because the law is the law. You know, you can't break into a federal building, Frank. So, you know, I would love to hear your take on that.
0: It's a it's it's the duping of America. You know, they they say a sucker's born every minute. And sadly, we've learned who the suckers are. Um, And I my reaction to this varies on who I'm speaking with. So, for example, if somebody stops me, you know, I'm in an Uber or a taxi and they're they they start telling me, hey, what's the deal? Is this was this an FBI? You know set up uh, all of january 6th was that true I, if they're genuinely asking you that i'm i'm going to take the moment to explain how this all works to them um to explain that what people like tucker carlson say on on their shows um that clearly has gotten to them um isn't accurate um and here's why you know tucker carlson famously saying you see all these people in these indictments who are not named those are fbi informants and <laughs> i explained no that that's not what that means means those people aren't charged yet or or they're cooperating or they're unindicted co-conspirators there's a lot of things it means but that's not how fbi informants or or actors would be handled in any indictment um and and so i deal with that person genuinely now with regard to the marjorie taylor greens with regard to the tucker carlson
3: he named names
0: uh, the, the alex jones uh joneses of the world Um, They are, in my opinion, doing an incredible disservice by duping America. Um, They are about as far from journalism as you can possibly get. Even Tucker Tucker himself admits he's not news, he's entertainment. Um, And they should be sued until there's no more money left in their bank accounts for damages Um, But they are duping America and it's un-American and undemocratic to do it. And it angers me if that doesn't show, because I did dedicate 25 years of my life to justice uh, and the FBI and to see what the damage is being done, the damage being done to the public's perception and just, just questioning. Think about think about that moment where an FBI agent has to ask for a citizen's assistance in anything a kidnapping, a a background investigation, uh, the bank robbery down the street, right? And, And if a citizen has to pause for one moment, I don't know, I heard some bad things from Tucker Carlson about you guys the other night, then the mission is eroded and all of our safety is impacted.
3: Mike, we talk often about having smoke for people on this show. That right there, smoke. I respect. Listen, that. I love Frank, it. it's it's why we
2: started this show. You know, I I worked there for a few years and the obviously this was from 04 to 07 and it wasn't like that. Because the Bush administration was in power, and Hannity had Combs, a Democrat, that was working on his program, and Bill O'Reilly was seen as a news guy, and you had Greta Van in attend, so she was seen as a news person, and your craziest person was maybe Geraldo Rivera covering Natalie Holloway or going to whatever giving away military positions. So it wasn't the network that I worked at once upon a time, and now it's got competition with people. You you put on OAN at nine o'clock and you watch Dan Ball. I mean, you hear some of the things that flies out of this guy's mouth and they're just making it up. And the worst part is, Frank, is that I know Tucker Carlson's senior producer very well. I know Greg Kelly's senior producer very well. They don't feel that way. And I try to stress this to people. We've had tons of segments about news judgment. I've worked in news for a few years and in sports production. But um, I love that you, this is why we did this show, because we want to have people informed Opinion. We've had DOJ prosecutors, yourself on uh, law professors, you know, scholar and scholarly opinion, but also based around a series of facts. The sky is blue, the sun's yellow. If we start getting into its green and its red, the conversation shouldn't continue anymore. And furthermore, we should be educating you on why it's blue and yellow because we have to start at the basis of a fact. And that's why, kind of, why we started this program. So I, I truly appreciate not only your service, Frank, but. But you sharing that with our audience, um.
0: you, you, you've raised a good point, Mike, which is that these people actually don't believe what they're spewing. They, they don't, whether it's it's covid or whether it's uh, January 6th was a hoax or as Alex Jones has now been successfully sued for promoting uh, the, the, new, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting was a hoax. Right. Um, they don't believe that this is this is them lining their purses with your money. That that's all this is about, and keeping the viewership up. That's it. They don't believe what you are now being asked to believe.
3: Totally agree. Go ahead, Nick. Frank. Over the time that you've been with the FBI, um, and to, to this point about you know what sort of governs uh, or what sets the north star you know for the FBI in terms of its mission, over time with different White House administrations, have there been times where the agency has felt the bureau rather has felt more intrusiveness, where it's not fe- feeling as free to do its job and be able to focus on what's what's critical, or in times where, in, by contrast, where it has felt more liberate or more able to to focus on what what the priorities are. You don't have to name administration if you don't want to, but you know, in your time in the FBI, have there been pushes or pulls where you feel that the Bureau has sometimes not necessarily been positioned to focus on what matters, but being so persuaded to, to focus on things that maybe are not necessarily the, the key priorities for the uh, for the FBI?
0: Yeah, interesting question. They're, they're clearly, I think we'd be naive to think that um, who's in the Oval Office or who's sitting in the Attorney General seat does not impact the work of the FBI. Sure, it does. But historically, what that's looked like has just been different priorities and emphasis. So- if uh, John Ashcroft, as Attorney General, wanted to emphasize um, uh, carjacking and gun crimes, okay, fine. Would we always agree that the FBI should be working carjackings? Maybe not. But but that's okay. If if you know a, a certain president said we're going going full bore on protecting access to abortion clinics because we now have a federal it's called a face act um, to allow access to abortion clinics. Were we thrilled with that as an expenditure of our time in terms of crime priorities? Maybe not. But that's what's happened in the past. What we've seen during the Trump administration was something vastly different than that, which which was an intervention to the point of suppressing justice. So I I had sources um, at FBI headquarters. You know, I I used to be the head of counterintelligence. The way my my tenure as as head of counterintelligence looked was um, on any given week, I'd be up on the Hill or at the White House or at um, the Attorney General's office briefing on some major espionage development. Okay. What I've heard was that during the Trump administration, particularly if it involved, God forbid, Russia, those briefings were not happening. Those briefings were not happening anywhere near the regularity they should be happening because there are reporting requirements to the Senate and House Intelligence Committees. You get this happening in your case, you must tell Congress. That's the way it works. Except of course, if the president doesn't want it to work that way and the attorney general says, I'm not approving your briefing on this to to Congress. So, uh, and and now replicate that throughout the intelligence community, the DNI being owned by a president, not pushing intel up to the Oval Office in the daily briefing, if the president ever reads the daily briefing. So, this is an important discussion because on the days when I say I've about had it with cable news and maybe I shouldn't be doing this anymore, I remind myself that if Trump or someone like him comes back into power, which there's every indication is going to happen in terms of him trying to, what does it look like? Uh, what, who's the FBI director? Who's the attorney general? Who's the DNI? And some of the names being tossed around are scary as hell and could literally turn the FBI into a spy, domestic spy agency working only for the president. Um, We're in for some ugly stuff. That keeps me going in terms of uh, talking like a loony bird on uh, television.
2: Frank. Please keep talking because obviously for the people on YouTube, you can see I have talk in the background, which Frank told me he used to use interrogation suspects. Frank, before we let you go, though, um, I I mentioned it and alluded to it. Your podcast, The Bureau with Frank Frick Luzzi, is is one of my uh, favorites. I love listening to it, getting some insight and knowledge about The Bureau. Why don't you take our audience a little bit through that podcast, your goal and intention when you started and some of your aims?
0: We're entering our third season. Um, We're recording now. My first guest, as I said, was Scott McFarland. We're going to have a former acting director of the FBI, Andy McCabe, on, uh, on uh, next week's episode. A very free-flowing and candid discussion from Andy McCabe about his firing by Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions um, and his successful resolution with EOJ, where he gets all his pension and back pay back. We'll be talking about that. Here's the goal of, um, of the podcast. It started, the first two seasons were every week interviewing active duty FBI personnel about their mission, their cases, their lives. I learned things that have been happening since I retired that I didn't know. For example, so I wanna educate the public. I'm educating myself. Did you know, for example, that it's now two hours or less to match your DNA um, to uh, to the uh, DNA in the FBI laboratory database? So, And did you know that as of this past summer, that, that has been pushed out to police departments, meaning if you're on a legal hold, let's say they're detaining you, maybe they don't know who you are. Maybe they do, but they don't know how bad you are. They swab you, 30 states allow a DNA buckle swab in your mouth uh, for, for being detained or arrested on certain things. They stick that in a digital kit provided by the FBI at the police station. Two hours or less, they know they're looking at a terrorist a rapist somebody who's good for several crimes two hours that was simply not the case um, when i was in and being pushed out to police departments no how about the fact that our grandkids will ask us uh, what a fingerprint was all about because why we're headed to biometrics being all about iris scans um, iris scan is the future of biometric identification we, we talked to top PhD scientists in the FBI lab. We've talked to a, an evidence technician supervisor who's been sadly to every major tragedy um, in the last five years as a head of an evidence response team. The Nashville Christmas bombing, the supermarket in Boulder, Colorado, the shooting of two FBI agents in Miami, Florida. He's been there. He walks us through the crime scene process for that. We do three episodes on behavioral profiling. I learned, I'm I'm interviewing a behavioral crime analyst, and she tells me, "I go, tell me about what you're doing right now." Well, I'm in charge of the, um, I'm in charge of the highway serial killer initiative. I said, "Excuse me," and she said, "Can you repeat that?" And she said, "Yeah, we've got these hundreds of unsolved uh, murders in proximity to the nation's highways. Um, It's been going on for for a long time." and they're unsolved. And, and I go, well, now, okay, you're, you're not me. I'm trying to be politically correct. So I go, now you're not implying that, that these are long haul truckers doing this, are you? And she goes, no, that's exactly what we're implying. Yep, it is. And, and yes, we've arrested numerous truckers over the years, and it's still not helping us solve all of the homicides.
2: That is fantastic. I, I highly recommend, no joke, it's on my favorites. If I could show you my phone, Frank, just to prove it to you. But the uh, the Bureau of Frank Figgluzy, check out that podcast available wherever you get your podcast. The FBI Way, his book, Catch Him. He just told us he's going to be on Brian Williams later in the evening. A major plug there. Uh, Frank, you do fantastic work. Uh, I truly appreciate the time you've given us tonight. Continued success to you. And I hope to have you on the program another time.
0: The same to you. I'm grateful for the time and best of the holidays to both of you.
2: Likewise, Frank. All right. Boy, now I could listen to that all day. That was Frank Figluzzi. Like I mentioned, a uh, former FBI assistant director in charge of counterintelligence, like he mentioned, 25 years at the Bureau. Uh, the FBI way, go check out his book. Uh, it's available wherever books are sold. His podcast, The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi, uh, like he mentioned, three seasons out there available wherever you get your podcast. And he's an MSNBC, excuse me, an NBC News contributor. Um, there's so much there uh, uh, that Frank talked about. Um, I like I mentioned, highly recommend you go check out his other stuff. But in the recent weeks, we're gonna get into the profiling of what we saw in Oxford, Michigan and the school shooting. And you know, this has been an endemic, let's be honest, folks, uh, it's, it's permeating for years and years in the lifeblood of America, school shootings, is something like a national holiday here. Uh, it's it's sad, it's tragic. Uh, and in the coming weeks, we're gonna do uh, uh, an assessment with a professor who's written a fantastic book about profiles uh, of, of people that have done school shootings, backgrounds, some of the stuff that Frank mentioned that the Oxford Police Department and the FBI there mm-hmm. are gonna start looking into, social media checks. You know, funny enough, Nick, before you and I taped, a mutual friend of ours that lives in Michigan <clears throat> texted me, he lives in the county. Uh, that school is about 30 minutes away from his. Mm. All schools were closed there for the next couple of days last week, um, you know, in connection with some social media threats that they found of other students. Um, to hear some of that stuff about, you know, that some teachers saw this and thought, you know, hey, this this kid could be something. Um, we talked about it in our first segment, so I don't want to dive deep into that, but that's pretty scary stuff. Uh, before we go, folks, Nick and I wanted to talk about one final thing here, uh, like we teased at the top, and that is what's happening with the WTA, Peng Shui, and the China investigation. If, you, if you've if you been living under a rock, okay, it's always if you've been living under a rock. Uh, former, not former, well, she was a former world number one doubles player, Peng Shui. She's a Chinese tennis player. Um, she had come out about maybe a month ago with some allegations against somebody high up in the Chinese uh, government Uh, Some sexual assault allegations. She had posted this to their equivalent of Facebook. Um, The post got deleted. Her profiles got subsequent deleted. Uh, No mention was made of her. And she went disappeared. She went and disappeared from public appearance for weeks. No one heard from her. The WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, which in interest of full disclosure, I like to say the company I work for is the official data provider for the WTA. So obviously, I I will say we support everything that the the WTA has done subsequent with this. But the WTA uh, uh, head was very concerned, hadn't heard from her uh, CEO, Steve Simon. And he said, listen, until the Chinese government does an investigation on this, we're going to pull out tournaments. After he said that, some videos surfaced of, you know, Peng Shui would look like forcibly smiling and doing a meeting with the IOC president just to over Zoom so everybody could kind of see that she was okay. It was a very weird interaction. There's been there's been a lot of outrage about this, and of course, China always comes up for people here because you got the, the shut up and dribble crowd uh, saying LeBron should be more vocal about the Chinese government and what they're doing to oppress their people. Uh, And here's a perfect example. And then you've got actually a corporation that's like, you know, we don't mind losing money and taking tournaments out of there until we find out what happened, because this girl, you know, says that she got sexually abused or or at least some sexual misconduct allegations against somebody high up in the Chinese government. I want to play a clip real quick because I gave a little bit of a summation there, but here's a more uh, in-depth summation uh, from Bloomberg News.
1: All mention of Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai has been scrubbed from the country's Internet. The former number one-ranked doubles champ had publicly accused former Vice Premier Zhang Gaoli, a close ally of President Xi Jinping, of sexual assault. Her four-paragraph post on November 2nd said several years ago she refused him, ate dinner with him and his wife, but eventually gave in. Now, an email has appeared, allegedly from Pung, retracting everything. The author writes, the allegation of sexual assault is not true. I'm not missing, nor am I unsafe. Steve Simon, head of the Women's Tennis Association, to whom the note was sent, doubts it's real. He wrote, I have a hard time believing that Peng Shui actually wrote the email we received. I have repeatedly tried to reach her, to no avail.
2: Nick, I know we wanted to talk about this because this is a story that's been kind of In and out of the news, uh, CNN has a a correspondent embedded in China, and every time they've done a hit there, they've shown the live feed in China, and the China feed goes to bars. And if you know television, bars means no service, so you're like, what's going on with my feed? And it's the Chinese government cutting out the feed whenever this guy is speaking, um, specifically about this investigation. The Chinese government has said that this woman is fine, um, and they've released photos, They've released a statement that they're claiming is from her, saying she's fine, and that she wished people would let her go about their business. This is really scary stuff. Um, I didn't even we didn't even ask Frank about this, um, but I wanted to get some of your takes on this because you and I were texting back and forth about this. Uh, imagine the censoring of an athlete making an accusation against somebody high up in government. I don't think that's ever made landfall here in the U S we're seeing it play out at one of our superpower rivals and we're seeing something that's unheard of. I, will she ever resurface to play in a tournament outside of China? Will they ever, there's so many questions here.
3: Mike, you said an interesting word there, um, censured, or uh, I think, I think censure yeah. was the word used, uh, I'll go one further and it's the one that's been sitting with me. She's been kidnapped, dude. I mean, G- this is a state-sponsored kidnapping. I don't know how you how you can't yeah, see. Is it isn't right. Like, and we have to all ask ourselves very seriously. Uh, well, not just us as consumers of products, but you know what the WTA did is the right thing. Um, you know, we need we all need to ask ourselves questions. If, if, if for any of us like sports fans or um, you know those who run leagues, you know, it's Chinese money worth it. Yeah, you know, I mean, the WTA made the statement recently that it is not that for, for the I, I mean, Mike, I'm at a loss for words, man. We're talking about someone getting yanked off the street because they exercised a human right, not necessarily one in China, but a human right to speak up and say, I've been the victim of assault. You know, Mike, we often criticize, not criticize, we are critical of, of our country. You know, we talk often about what can be done better. Um, but when I hear stories like this, I, I do want to stress to people that, you know, we do, have a, we do have an opportunity as a country to do far better. You know, and our guest earlier, Frank, talked about, you know, with Trump, but I don't, um, you know, th- those kinds of people who have the ambition to manipulate the FBI and other agencies to serve as representatives of the state, to work at the whim. Of a, of a White House. And that's the kind of thing that China does. you know, The ability to just make someone disappear because they had the audacity to put something out there you know, for public consumption, that's frightening. And to go one further, you know, the IOC is in bed with them. We got the Winter Olympics. I would imagine any Olympian right now is asking themselves, is this worth it? And the, the reality is they are all going to say yes because I think to be an Olympian to train this hard, this is what you this is what you shoot for. Every four years, the opportunity either in the summer or winter to compete against the world that is it is the height of athletic competition, and you are willing to toe the line. You know we saw this with the most recent Summer Olympics, the talk about what you are allowed to say, what you are not allowed to say, and here we go again with this, but. Yeah, I mean I mean, as parents, I'd have to seriously give thought to one of my daughters competing, even if they happen to be the best in the world or whatever they do, or potentially the best in the world. But the safety, you know, to be in a country where what you say could make you disappear. And I can't stress that enough, folks. Feng Shui is not walking the street right now. Nope. all we're seeing is a Zoom video and pictures of it and the promise. From an unreliable nation in terms of its communication, that she's safe. That is that is unconscionable to have any kind of relationship with them. You know, and to think about the fact that we go back to, and you, you and I are both fans of the NBA, as so many of our listeners are, of the NBA's reaction, yeah, you know, to what Daryl Maury had, po- had posted in regards to Hong Kong and the and the league backing up. You know, Adam Silver had some positive things to say about like you know, backing Maury, but Darren Morley moved on from Houston, a market that embraced China, thankfully, or partly because of the drafting of Yao Ming. It meant millions of dollars to that franchise. And for Morley to say what he said, you best believe that owner wasn't happy because of the dollars. And then you have someone like LeBron. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to give fodder to the right on that. But you have players that, that simply decline the opportunity to. To get into a meaningful conversation about what the hell is going on there? Listen, you know, you t- we've talked about this on other episodes
2: about human currency versus financial currency, and like the the Rockets, you know, kind of disregarding Maury's statement, or at least not you know backing him up, and all of a sudden him issuing an apology because of the amount of money that they used to make in China, thanks to their Hall of Fame popular player being of Chinese descent. For people that don't know what we're talking about, type in Peng Shui into Google and you will see all of the readouts of what's been transpiring. Um, there's nothing scarier for some of you folks uh, or, or for if you're listening, and you know, people that have been out here screaming freedom, liberty, America for all these vaccine mandates and stuff like that, that have the opportunity to say those things, post them on social media. Look up Peng Shui's story her entire profile got wiped. She has not been in the public eye. She does not have any access to a phone. She uh, Pictures of her are coming out, filtered through the Chinese government lens. When reporters try to do a story about her, the stories are blacked out by China, CCTV, Chinese television over there. That is scary stuff. And that does not happen here. So you, the folks that continue to yell freedom, liberty, and that Joe Biden's moving our country to some type of regime that looks like that, that's not happening because for you more, are allowed to more be- for believing it. Exactly, you're allowed to continue uh, propagating whatever lie you want across whatever platforms. We we've talked about it a bunch here, from Joe Rogan to Nicki Minaj to Stephen Jackson to Aaron Rodgers. These are not deleted. These are not deleted by the IGs they, they, they're deleted by the people themselves. Like nobody. Stephen is Stephen Jackson kidnapped? Is Aaron Rodgers kidnapped? Is anybody anybody m- missing here, Nick? So like. I would, I would encourage all of our listeners, if you don't know a lot about this story, go, go read up on online. Washington Post has a fantastic piece on it and what the WTA has done subsequent because she was a, a player on the WTA. Um, listen. For this program, we thank each and every one of you for tuning in, watching, listening, thousands of listens. We've, we want you to email us, engage with us, can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. If you have a take on one of the topics we talked about tonight from the Oxford shooting uh, to the Peng Shui stuff, to what we talked about with Frank Figaluzzi, if you, if you wanna get in touch with Frank, uh, shoot us an email, uh, IG, TikTok, Twitter, at can we please talk podcast, Twitter at can we please talk. Please follow our social handles, Check out YouTube for all of our video clips and in the show notes, whatever audio podcast platform, listen to us right now, click on the Patreon link, become a subscriber. You get some more bonus content and other things that our guests have told us when the cameras are kind of off, you know, in the coming weeks, folks, we're going to have some great guests, great topics spanning the range. We're going to talk Democrats and the messaging around the midterms coming up with a former democratic strategist. We've got an education correspondent talking about. Some things that have been happening in the education sphere that Nick wants to bring to this show, but we got somebody we got somebody better than Nick, an NPR correspondent that's going to be coming on the program. Uh, as always, thank you so much, everybody.
3: I am Mike Leon. Proud of this program. Grateful to be Mike's partner through this. Uh, blown away by the opportunity for us to put out truth and the good stuff. I'm Nick Saveri. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you next time.